Thank you for joining me for another episode of Empower Apps. Today, I'm joined by Cheered in Spain. Cheered, thank you so much for coming on. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Really excited to be here. Yeah. Before we begin, I'll let you introduce yourself. Okay. Yeah, so my name is Cheered. You may know me from maybe writing Swift in Depth. I've been working at Twitter for the last year, which circumstances changed. Most people may have known. And before that, I also worked at ING for five years, where I helped scale up quite a substantial code base. So... Yeah, been a Swift developer, iOS developer for yeah, since iOS four, I think. So quite a while. Yeah. Nice. That's a that's a long history. So today we're yeah. going to be talking about a book you're working on. You want to talk about what that book is and yeah, why yeah, so people right, should be interested. Yeah, so it's it's kind of interesting because so I'm writing mobile system design, but it's more I, I guess a contemporary topic because nowadays people have yeah, been honestly quite. A bunch of layoffs and people are, are applying to jobs and, and they really associate it with, with interviews. But, if, but what I find interesting is if you ask someone what mobile system design is, they kind of go like, yeah, maybe it's about a modular app or it's some say it's about interviews and some say it's about like UI flows or any type of answer. But what, what I think you see a lot is like it's usually backend associated, right? Like if you think about mobile or if you think about system design, you think about backend, like like the backend interview process, but I feel like, yeah, but what about mobile itself? Like, I know the joke is we just make JSON apps and we render them in some scroll view, but like, if you take a serious app, that's totally not the case. You have like real, like thousands of little decisions you're making just to make features, to keep adding features, like abstractions, etc. So I figured like, yeah, like a mobile system designer would be nice to write. I have been writing before, so I'm just taking a stab at it. Yeah. So can I describe exactly what you mean by mobile systems design? Like, yeah. are, we ta- are we talking UI design? What do we mean by system? Like, kind of break that down. Yeah, so well, the fun part is it's not really defined. So I'm just trying to define it, right? <laughs> like, like if, you, if you look at the dictionary, maybe you can find something. But, but how I look at mobile system design is you, have, you get, like, a requirement, something to make as a mobile developer, right? We make things, obviously. But how you approach that can be... Can be wildly varied, right? Some person just goes straight into the UI and just makes stuff and makes it work. Another person thinks about maybe all the edge cases and draws the diagrams and like thinks about like all the domains that are happening. So when I think about mobile system design, I think about like receiving the specs and requirements and coming up with some sort of system, like like yeah, almost like in a graph way, like what is needed to make these requirements work. So let's say let's take an example. For example, let's say someone asks, "Hey, can you make a video uploader?" Now, one person may think like, "Oh, yeah, I'm just gonna." It may think very UI wise, right? They may think, "I'm gonna grab the photo picker and filter on video, and then I click it, and then we'll upload." But another person may think, "You know, video uploader of videos, they're large files, so they need to be stored. They need to be uploaded in a. It's gonna take a long time because they're large files, so maybe we need to chunk them. The app is backgrounded, so they can think more maybe in these edge cases." And all these like constraints, and I think that's more where I'm leaning to with mobile system design is like you get like a requirement and like a thing that needs to be made, and you can figure out all the parts that are needed and also all the problems you may hit. Also working with your team, like like how does it work for backend? What do they need so for your for your feature to work and and so on. So I think it's maybe a long answer, but I feel like that's kind of where it goes, right? And so the sort of the domain types. Well, that's what I found really interesting about the book is one of the things you really tackle is asking the right questions, because I feel like that's that's a real difficulty. I think you use use the line like so there's there's known known unknowns and then there's unknown unknowns. And that's like the one of the bigger challenges with 
designing a mobile app, right? Yeah, yeah. Like if you receive a feature, usually as a mobile developer, you get them by getting UI designs. And I think the the real power there is to really dive deep because if you ask the right questions, you can maybe even skip a couple spins of work because you may already tackle on some problems. So yeah, like you said, there are like known unknowns. Like like I know I don't know yet how I'm gonna make this backend call, or I know I don't know yet how I will have to cache this data, but I know I have to. And then there are, like you said, the unknown unknowns, like, yeah, like I'm going to hit more issues or maybe not. And, and I'm, I have to keep that into account. And, and it's about asking proper questions to sort of uncover those during the briefing already. Yeah. So like, what, what do you think is a good way to like, make sure you ask those right questions before it's too late? Yeah. So. Well, a couple of ways you can do with this. I think one thing I like to do is sort of to try to break the feature. And like, there's maybe like a negative view, but like, like thinking like, like what can I do to make this feature really go bad? Like, like so yeah, let's take an example. Let's take again, again, this video uploader, right? Like if I, if someone gives me screens and says, here, make this video uploader, I'm gonna, you know, open 50 y and I'm gonna make a video uploader screen. Like you're gonna hit some problems later on because like video uploading is its own kind of beast. So it's about figuring out, like going through the motions, like, okay, like, just pretending like I have the feature working, how would that look like? I have no, no, I have UI, but like think about like, where does the data go? What kind of data models do I need? But how does that reflect in UI? Is the video, for example, on my device? And if not, well, then maybe it needs to be downloaded. Maybe the designer didn't think about that first. Maybe they think the videos are available. Right. So it's about asking those kind of questions and like going through the feature and trying to find those kind of pitfalls. Because if, let's say, the designer did not think about, like, the video needs to be downloaded first, and you figure that out, like, you, you can already get the designer started on iterating their design while you're already working on other things. So you may save maybe a week of work because maybe if you do it later, you're like, oh crap, the videos are not downloaded. Well then now the design has to work much later in the process and maybe you now delay the project. So, right. so yeah, it's about finding those problems. One thing I want to talk about, and especially this could be the case with video uploading, is error handling. Some like designers think that the app is going to work all the time, but with video uploading, that's as somebody yeah. who's uploaded tons of video, trust me, like you, oh, the upload quit in the middle or you yeah. lost internet connection or the the video codec isn't right for what the service yeah. is expecting. I mean, there's like tons of issues you can run into that just happen in the real world. How can, how can you best address those issues, both for yourself, but also something that the UI designer should consider? Yeah, so error handling is a very deep topic. It can go from the ones and zeros all the way to the customer UI facing errors. I think from a designer perspective, I think you're more in the realm of customer facing UI. So like errors that cannot be handled by the app and you have to present something to the customer for them to take action or from them. I think it's good to think about like what kind of things can go wrong with errors, a couple of things. So. Like, like you have to think about like what kind of errors are gonna customers gonna see? How can they recover? Can they recover? But also maybe what about partial errors? Let's say you have a screen that needs to fetch four types of data to populate the screen. What if three go three of those API calls go well, one doesn't? We can be lazy and just throw up an alert, okay? But we can maybe make it more like nice where each component has its own little error message option in there, so it's more yeah. embedded. Yeah, uh, and, and that may make the component more reusable as well. It can maybe put it somewhere else and it handles, it can maybe show errors better. So I think it's good to think about like how your data loads 
if it's going to go going to be one package or piecemeal pieces and how the customer can or you a user can recover i think are already good starting points other than more just more than just showing alert i think that's the easy way out <laughs> yeah right 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 yeah that's a that's a good that's a good way like just ha having a way that the user can actually recover from that error or retry or whatever it is yeah um, stuff like that yeah yeah are there ways that a ui design possibly could be misleading and maybe also like Let's let's address that one first before I jump into the next question. But yeah, how how could UI designs be misleading? Because that's something you talk about in the book. Yeah, so a lot of people also wonder sometimes, like, is the design the truth? Like, if I get design, is do I make this pixel perfect? I know I'm going to be on a touchy subject here, but like, if you think about it, like, especially nowadays, maybe not so much when I started when I was I was four, but nowadays. You have so many variations with screens, right? You have dynamic type, dark mode, accessibility, left to right, right to left. Like, like when the designer gives you a screen, that's not really always the screen. Like, you can make it pixel perfect in the sense of, um, you know, you, you make sure the colors are correct and the board is all correct. But the si I, I, I see a screen way more as a, as a thing that is very dynamic nowadays. Right. Uh, and, and, and designer cannot give you 12,000 variations, but like all the dynamic font size times all the dark mode times all the themes times whatever. So I think it makes sense to to figure out with it. I guess the, the, the clue, the, the part of the story is to really work with the designer to figure out what is really important and figure out what is sort of set in stone, like certain margins and certain mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. colors and themes and what things are sort of like open for interpretation and for variation. So I don't know, a designer may have like a, a large device to test on, but the next person may have a smaller iPhone, for example. The designer may may want to do another round for just those devices. Like, so I guess it comes down to really figure out like what is really important for them, for the company, um, and not take a design as sort of the, the truth because there is no one design. And yes, you can scale up the designs in some tools. You can scale up so you can see how everything stretches, but it's still not. For example, large font size with right to left and, I don't know, a custom layout. So you're still missing right. some versions. So, yeah, more yeah, closely, I, I guess. <laughs> I'm just thinking, like, if you've been doing this since iOS 7 when or iOS 4, like, the amount of devices. I just, re I was thinking the other day about, like, size classes. Remember size classes? Yeah. yeah. Like, we don't, like, now with Swift UI, we barely talk about that. But, like, that was a big deal when they added that because, like, they had all these new phone sizes and iPad yeah. and all that stuff. So, yeah, yeah it's, and the accessibility stuff you talk about. So, one of the things you mentioned in the book that I have not, I'm not against them, but I found them to kind of be abused a lot in the enterprise. And you're a big fan of is diagrams. Do you want to talk about how maybe diagrams like kind of, in your opinion, fixes a lot of the issues with misleading UI design? So you mean like diagrams in terms of the landscape, drawing out the components needed or? Mm -hmm. yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. You had, yeah. you have some really good yeah. stuff in the book too. Like you're talking about, oh, okay, thanks. this is the data flow and this like, yeah. I guess I'll just get into it. Like my, my problem with the diagrams is they kind of, they, they can be misleading too in how they might show like how we, we know exactly how this app is going to work, 
Yeah. But then when you actually get into it, it's like, oh, yeah, we have this one thing. Now we have to change this whole diagram. Yeah. To me, sometimes like diagrams add more work than help. But you have some really good stuff in the book talking about how diagrams can actually be helpful. So so first of all, first, yeah, I'm using the diagrams in the book for for the book itself. Right. It doesn't mean whenever I'm opening Xcode, I op I'm drawing diagrams. Um, <laughs> but I do think I do think they're definitely a design tool for teams to align on what needs to be built. If if you sort of, let's say you have a team of five iOS developers or whatever developers, they, they have to make something. You can talk about what you need, but you can also draw it out. And diagram can just be even a little post-it note with a little a pencil sketch just mm -hmm. to get people aligned. So, because there's a lot of risk of miscommunication, I think when you work with people, like everyone thinks they know what they know, but actually they don't. Yeah. And and they make, and, and, that, and that's good to know what people are working on. But diagrams don't really capture the details. I think that's maybe the the problem because I can draw in a diagram. I can let's go back to the video upload it just for consistency. Let's I can yeah, draw yeah, like, yeah. like 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 a, a data chunker and like a background upload. And I can draw it in a diagram, but mm -hmm. uh, it's not a program. Uh, uh, there's a lot of details missing, right? But I can at least align with someone. Like, what are they going to work on? What am I going to work on? Right, uh, right. But how to do it is sort of yeah, very platform specific, which is kind of like. How I see it, at least, is there's room for interpretation. How we may all agree someone makes a video upload and someone makes the UI, but how you do it is maybe outside of diamonds a diagram scope. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so, I mean, it sounds to me like you think the big plus with diagrams, and I totally agree, is probably like communication across. Like when you have more than like maybe yeah. like three people, I think a diagram, and like you said, it could be a post-it note, and it is also. Yeah. It sounds to me like the diagram is temporary, I guess would be a good way to put it. It's not it's not it's something initial. you write in stone and then it's like, okay, it goes into the documentation and it's forever there. Where yeah, it's not in stone. Sometimes um, it can be. So so I've been in projects where we had like tech yeah. tech documentation where you actually there was like a, a complicated flow and this diagram was really like great because it was sort of the communication tool to decide when data is loaded and uploaded. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. So it sort of was like a source of truth in communication, but depends yeah. on your company. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that, that I think makes a total total sense when you have a big team. And not, you know, just just in case you're ever wondering, nobody stays at a company forever. So if you're gonna pass that information down, like yeah. that's a good opportunity there. Yeah, of course the hard part of the documentation is keeping it in right. Yeah. 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 With a lot of larger companies, what are like some of the best ways that mobile web whatever honestly can align especially with the back-end team and making sure that they get what they need but also like the the front-end teams understand like what why mobile is doing things the way they do if that makes sense yeah so maybe maybe it's good to like talking to like in terms of an example yeah, so for Come example, on, video uploader. Let's do video. Yeah, uploader. let's take the video uploader. I see it's a great point. So video uploading, let's say you want to do like a background uploading thing, right? Because you have to with video upload. That means you need some sort of way to to chunk up data. Right. Uh, and, and upload it. So yeah. So when working with backends, I think there's a couple of things. I think one thing you want to focus on, I would say, is getting to the integration as fast as possible. Because I think, and with integration, I mean making actual API calls. And I know that's kind of like the whole world of mobile, like how to make API call. But I do think sometimes people focus too much on like the UI 
where they get a design, for example, again, the video uploader, and they make it all like nice with the shadows, and then they start integrating it, and then they realize, oh, wait, I have a complete misalignment here with the backend developer. So, I got uh, this really cool Swift UI animation, but it's totally useless because our backend yeah. doesn't support it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah whatever. So, the, so one thing I, I try to steer towards, and also do that in the book, is to get the integration as quickly as possible. So when, when you do this, when you make an actual API call, you learn a lot, and the backend doesn't have to be ready. By the way, they can just have like a mock response. But yeah. you learn like how. Which, yeah. By the way, I wanna I wanna just say like I like what you did in the book where you had like the fake the fake API, and I was like, why is he using Thread Sleep? Like why? And then it's like, oh yeah, I see what you're doing because you want to like mock up the 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 backend call in your in your your app. So yeah, yeah, I, yeah sorry, I'm... I just wanted to mention that that's like a really good that's a really good way to like get some velocity on your mobile dev without necessarily yeah. depending on your back end, assuming that you, you stay in sync with your back end. Sorry. I just wanted to say yeah. that that was no, really no. cool. It's totally. So yeah. So what I want to steer towards usually is to get the, the complete end to end sort of call ready as soon as possible. So like if yeah. you have data and it needs to be uploaded, common scenario, but don't wait till UI is done. Like do it way earlier because you're going to learn that you, for example, maybe the back end says he's ready. But your laptop cannot connect to staging, and like, oh, oh, wait, I need, I forgot, you have to give you a token. Oh, wait, now you need some special rights you have to request, and now you're weak further, depending on your company. Yeah, uh, right. Or maybe, or maybe you need to get some tokens from this third-party SDK you use, and you're like, oh, wait, I have to actually get more budget now because I'm a right. new employee and I need the budget for it. So whatever it is, like, you, there, there are these things you don't know what's gonna happen when you postpone the actual integration. So yeah. I think by by moving them more forwards in your development process, and I know maybe it's not as exciting as UI for some people, you're gonna learn a lot quicker what problems are really there. And what's nice about that is you can sort of like, quote unquote, activate your team members to to fix these issues while you're doing the rest, as opposed to getting everything ready and then you make your sort of make a backend call and then realizing it's actually not working and then needing to add a couple more weeks of time to get everything ready. So that's one thing I would really recommend is to do to talk to to integrate as soon as possible. But uh, regarding alignments, yeah, that to me just comes down to regular communication. It's hard to give you a pre-made answer for the situation. But like in case of video uploading, you know, you have to think like what could go wrong. Like how would you, what formats do you expect? Like how often can we hammer the server? Like how, like uh, do we need to take some measures or even loading data? Like. Like, is there a problem if you start loading a lot of data from the back and like, do we need to do some local storage? That's something you may want to consider. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah. A common one is I have a screen and I need four types of data. Can you talk to the backend to just give it in as one API call? That's always going to be a nice discussion. I feel like it can be worth it. For example, if you have a more traditional REST API, you can say, you know what, can you give me the data in one format, which may be more work for a backender and they may not want to do it because they can just say make four API calls, but if the Android developer also has to do it, and now the web developer also has to do it, it's actually a lot of work for all of them. So then you can have those conversations as well. Like how can you consolidate certain data so that it's more consumable from all of them? Those are, I think, discussions you can have. One thing I think is really helpful is demos, weekly demos of like each yeah. team, like, okay, let's see how the Android app works. And then like the iOS folks are like, oh, interesting. You did this. And the backend folks are like, 
let's not do that with the API. If you upload like that, yeah. it's going to hammer our servers. Like you need to do some, and, you know, and I think that's really like, if we talk about meetings, like meetings can be awful, but like a good demo every week, just to show off a feature that everybody is working on in parallel, yeah. I think is going to be super help making sure yeah. everybody's on the same page. Yeah, and, or even internal builds. I love internal builds because it gets people excited. I think people see actually see their work actually working in their own hands. I think it's also an amazing tool. Right, right. Yeah. So one one term you used throughout the book is holistic driven development. What yeah. what does that mean exactly? I made it up. <laughs> we just so, we um, need one more. We need one more driven yeah, development. Need so, more HDDs, TDDs. I yeah. Know, it's, so I'm trying to. Uh, you should you should sell. All. You should make a whole business of selling certifications for that, along with your book. Yeah. 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 That's true. So, well, the thing is, it's not really one thing. So that's why I tried to give it a new name. But with what I call holistic driven development is a way to start from scratch. So someone gives you a feature requirement, and to have something working really quickly. But not only to just throw away as an experiment, as an experiment, but also to have it working for the long term. So you think about the domains that you need, like which types, which classes you need. You think about API design. You think about binary, the the boundaries of APIs, and then with that I mean the APIs of your own types. But to make it more concrete, uh, let's talk about the video uploader. It's it's about sort of top down design method, which is not a new thing. But what what I really propose is you work your way down. So you start at the top of sort of API design, how, how you would use this video uploader. So let's say I'm in, let's say you have a teammate that also does, does the UI part and you do the uploading part. Your teammate would only be interested in the API of the video uploader. It doesn't care if it uses all the offline storage. It doesn't care if it uses background uploading. Like the, the, the UI part only needs to know like, hey, I'm picking a video, I'm sending this video to you and you handle the uploading. So these kind of barriers become really important. So with holistic driven design, what I try to share there is you start this sort of top-down uh, driven development where you think about what's most important from the API side, but then internally it's all placeholders because it doesn't matter to the call side whether or not things are working, right? This can really speed up the, the process for everyone. But as soon as the but as long as you properly design the API boundaries of these types. Then what happens on the water yeah, can just be updated over time to like the real implementation later on. So this kind of yeah, it's, so so I guess what what you what that means is like over time you go deep and deep and deep in your code base to actually hit the real network calls and the real data stores. But those problems become so trivial at that point. All you have to do is uh, quote unquote just make a URL session call and make a background task and you're done. But because you've thought of everything else already and you've thought of all the bits and pieces and how everything is calling each other, you can defer the complicated parts. This may be a long <laughs> answer, but uh, yeah. yeah well, kind of but it's funny you're talking about the complicated parts and, and breaking things down because we we're, were talking before the show about your neighbor and our, like one of our. 500 Dutch guests that we've had on the show. And Donnie, your neighbor, had a tweet about abstractions and and how abstractions can sometimes be unhelpful. And you, you had some interesting thoughts about like over-engineering and abstractions yeah. and, and and like when they're helpful, when they're not. You want to kind of break that down as well? Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know if I could do it in a few minutes, but uh, for sure. So I've been involved with tons and tons of teams who have made tons of abstractions or lack of abstractions, and me included, where I've seen 
everything go wrong and everything go right basically so i have a lot of i try to distill a, a lot of like best practices that you can think of when you make your own code that should this be an abstraction like very common like say you have another team that has like a component you want to use it but it's slightly different than what you really need like what are you going to do are you going to make an, ex an abstraction and take something out for what you need and then offer like a, a thing that you can build on top or are you going to duplicate it because it's too different and it's going to be too, too different or you know i see people post these tweets like if it's used three times then it needs to be made be usable but not before but like that's kind of true but i think abstraction is such a deep topic like mm -hmm. for example right. just because you know, just because code is reusable doesn't mean it's generic or vice versa and something oh interesting i like that yeah yeah and, and also sometimes it can be a good thing to actually start with a generic component even though everyone says not to because like i give an example in the book like i make a little store and the store is generic it stores just, just generic things like it stores data that in an offline store in an offline mm -hmm. way but it's generic right away it's not like used three times and then it's extracted into its own thing it's already a reusable component which isn't reused yeah but then is it yeah but then is it over engineering and i go about I go over that actually and um, depending on where you are in the abstraction layer and where this component lives, you can also decide if it should be generic, if it should be serving other features, and if so, should it know about this other feature? Uh, right. Why or why not? So, so those are topics I like to touch upon because I think a lot of stuff goes wrong there. Yeah. Yeah. What, what do you think is like the biggest mistake one can have when they're uh, like abstracting an API I, in such a way? I think I've. Well, maybe not the biggest, maybe the most common one is people con conflating the type name with the instance name. So I'm going to give a classic example, and then maybe I'm going to maybe be a bigger example. Will um, it involve a so, video uploader? That's the important thing. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's <laughs> exactly. So let's say I have an image with a description, and I'm using it for the video uploading, right, to show mm -hmm. you what the image is about. Yep. People may call this type, they make a component, and they call it video image description. I have no better name right now, but I think that's that's actually already the, the problem that I see because that is how you would use it because how you use the thing is for your video image. So that would be the instance name, video description, for example, mm -hmm. that would be the instance. But people call it the type video description or video image description. And the problem with that is that if you think about what the type is, so it's nothing more than an image with the description, mm -hmm. it has nothing to do with videos at all. Right, it so, doesn't have to, right. No, no. So what happens now is someone else also needs an image and description for an avatar, for like a person profile. Can they use the video image description? Well, they could, but the name doesn't make sense, right? It has video in it. So right. something went wrong, but it is the same thing. Maybe the dimensions should be configurable, whatever, but like it's the same thing. So what I think goes wrong there is that people give the name of how it's used to the type, but it should okay. be only given to the instance. But this is like a very maybe a basic example, but it goes really far. Like you may have, let's say you have this payment flow and yeah. it uses screens that are backend driven. So like, let's say the backend decides which screens are used to render the, the payment flow, to render the payment flow. Right. Uh, this may be called like payment flow, backend, I don't know what's called it, like backend UI, the PBUI. Mm -hmm. And then and now, now everyone is using this uh, PBUI system. But guess what? The the whole flow doesn't need to know about payments at all. It's it's about right. uh, it's about a backend UI driven thing. So it's used for payments. So people call it payments UI backend UI flow, 
but it's actually it's actually standalone backend UI flow on its own. So these naming things, they I see them go wrong a lot. Because if you would call it backend UI only, now you can use it for anything and it's still just as reusable and, and generic as before, but it's the same thing, but the name is just better. Right. right. It doesn't sort of hint at how you should use it. I think thinking more like an instance name. So the instance name could be a payment UI flow, but the type could be backend UI flow or something. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That is right. already, uh, that's going to solve, I think, a lot of problems already people have. Because yeah, now yeah. you can reuse it. You now the name is more clear. You know, you know kind of where it fits in the abstraction layer. It's like it's not really a feature specific. It's more like a, a tool to help features and so on. So let's talk a little bit about everybody's fun, like favorite topic: architecture patterns. How how do the art how do architecture patterns fit in with the design of your app? Like, at what point should you be like, okay, I need to use this pattern or that pattern with as you develop the app or as you design the app? Yeah, so this is quite a, a minefield of a topic, but I'm gonna step into it anyway. <laughs> I yeah. Think, yeah, yeah, yeah. So when mobile developers talk about patterns and architectures, they usually only mean UI architecture, like you have Viper, few model, you know, uh, composable architecture, and composable, VM, whatever, yes. MVP, everything, and and uh, you know, uh, reactive, whatever. Um, but it's usually UI based, and the problems are common. Common problems are related to binding data to UI. Mm -hmm. I want to sort of maybe simplify it too much. Yep. I'm gonna get all no, totally, in. totally. But the way I so what was your question exactly? Like, how does it fit in the development? Yeah, when you're designing the app, like how how can you look at that UI design or maybe the diagrams that you've built and be like, okay, like this is the architecture pattern we're going to be using for developing that. Yeah, yeah. So well, I may have a strange opinion, but I feel like it usually doesn't matter. In my experience, it's more about preferences from what I've mm -hmm. seen. Because I've seen people make great apps from with many patterns, but I feel like there are like some some guides there. You can say if your app has a lot of like live updating data, then maybe you're more partial to using a reactive pattern because it's otherwise hard to keep everything updated. But 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 I would say so what I'm usually leaning towards to is try to keep things as simple as possible, and that's easy to say. But I feel like sometimes patterns can be too much of a crutch. Like if someone right. says, I need like a five-letter acronym to make this app, then I'm kind of nervous, <laughs> like, hold on. Like, like, like why? Like, like some, to be honest, sometimes screens are, can be simple, right? You fetch some data and you, you render it. Like right. there's millions of tutorials on that already. So why do we need like a, a six-letter acronym or something or five-letter acronym to solve this? But I think the real issues is, are more related to different issues that people face. And I, th I think a pattern may help sort of get people used to how to make an app. So that's sort of like a crutch, like you, like, oh, I'm used to using VM, I'm used to using SwiftUI with composable architecture or whatever, like I'm gonna use them, gonna solve, it's gonna solve a lot of problems for that person. But I feel like over in two years, there's gonna be a next pattern and there's gonna be a next one after five years. So yep. that's yeah. kind of what I wanna hint at as well, sorry. No, I think you you hit it on the nose. I think it's helpful for teams, like larger teams, where they need to agree on like, okay, we need to add a new screen. Okay, this is how we add a new screen for this large app. I think that that's helpful. I think yeah, yeah. I mean, I I agree with you. I think it can be too much of a crutch because, like you said, you a they change a lot, which we'll get into third party libraries. It's the same situation. And it's sometimes over, like it's sometimes a bit of an over engineering of how something works. To me, like patterns come out of how you've designed the app 
not it's not something you go okay this is what we're going to do and we're going to move forward with it yeah and it's like there are definitely anti-patterns or definitely i think it's like i said based on your team it's also based on the underlying platform like like in swift ui like you never want to do mvc sorry you just you don't like don't do mvc like that's obvious but like there are multiple patterns you could use there are ways you can use combinations of different patterns and i think like that's where that's where like how you know in my opinion architectural patterns fit in really yeah i do i do agree with you it's a good alignment too in, in larger companies it is nice to have like a sort of alignment okay like these are sort of the patterns we we will use yep. because because let's see in large company people say can i use combine can i use rx fifth or mm-hmm. or whatever like they, they will ask and it doesn't make sense to just mix and match because everyone has different preferences. I would say try to pick the patterns that work for your company. Right. If you have, if you just have a bunch of table views, you know why? Why go all overboard with the all fancy stuff? Just, just make a little small view model. But maybe you have a live updating chat service, and maybe reactive codebase makes a lot of sense. You right. know, but right. Exactly. Don't mix it all up, I would say. Try not to. So let's talk also about like libraries and like trends in development because that kind of piggies back off of that where it's like sometimes using third-party libraries can be a crutch as well sometimes it can be helpful to get something done quick like where do you fall on that spectrum i guess so early in my career i was really like excited about third-party libraries like especially for example i did like ruby development and i could just get grab a couple gems and it's working and i'm good to go but now i'm a bit more apprehensive because well the problem i find is well there are a couple problems i feel like the third-party library should really solve a major issue for you because if if you just very easily add a, part, a third party library to your application, then well, you risk that the main, the, the maintenance is slow, so you have to do some due diligence. There's maybe a legal department in your app team that also has to approve. There may be issues with like I remember having had issues with Swift releases, then uh, that impacted the, some of the party libraries, and they, right. they were just one week too slow. So now you were actually depending on them to do the work. People you don't know, and that's kind of I feel like a problem, but. There are safe bets for sure. And uh, for example, if I'm going to want to do image caching on a UI kit, I'm not going to reinvent the view. I'm just going to grab Kingfisher or something, right? Like, right, I'm right, right. Really, like, wasting my time. So, so I would say be like, treat it like, I say I was in the book, like, treat it like cinnamon, like a little bit here and there is good, but not, not too much. It ruins everything. Yeah, I don't want to eat uh, a spoonful. That's kind of my sense. Yeah. yeah. I think, like, to me, like, a good, a good indication is open source. Like, if for some reason people aren't, like, you got to think, like, if people aren't, aren't maintaining it then at least could you take that fork it and put it in and use it yourself and do whatever you need yeah. to do because that's always an option but a huge investment you have to keep that in mind yeah yeah so like yeah. you know is it worth building it yourself or is it worth using the library and then maintaining it yourself if need be like yeah and uh, like is it is it used is it updated you don't want to i've seen libraries that are still on swift 4 or swift 3 and i'm just like yeah okay yeah. this is this is dead like and just yeah keeping that in mind yeah sometimes teams are really i mean i, I think it's wonderful that people work for and, and uh, you know use their free time to build something for people that they can use but i, I think we just have to be careful to to make sure that yeah things are not slowing down your company your business because that's then that's gonna be painful the time gain you get is gonna be lost when teams are just slow to update their stuff yeah, so, yeah yep give a helping hand if you can contribute stuff like that you got to keep it all in mind yeah yeah let's so i want to talk about we'll talk about testing 
first and then I'll get into interviews last. So uh, my fields. <laughs> yeah. So you so, had some you have some interesting things you wanted to talk about when it comes to testing and yeah, that you wanted to talk about. So because I mean, I think testing yeah. is super important. I think yeah. like code coverage is a nice indication, but not the be all end all. No. But to me, like testing also is a good way to have a healthy architecture in the end as well. What, what What's your take on testing when it comes to systems design? Yeah, so I feel like it's good to know kind of the, the things you're really trying to solve in a mobile app. I think a lot of people, they, they make something new and they write a test for it and they merge and then, you know, and then if there's something in during the release cutoff, where you like make a release bill for internal checks before you submit it. I think that's where the real testing happens sometimes where you make, so let's take about the process, right? Like you have the main branch, you're gonna make a release, you cut off the branch, you make a release branch, and then maybe let's say in a company, you have like a week long where people check the copy, they translate the right. copy, they check, they do manual tests, all the stuff. It's your, the app is UI tested and, or your unit tested, but the real issues usually come out there because the hard part about mobile, what I find, is the whole release process. We can't just quickly roll back a release, we just have to push forward and right. we can use feature flags and, and stage rollout to sort of remedy the shortcomings. But once the crappy broken build is out, you're, you have to be quick. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> like yeah. Yeah, so, so what I want to focus on is how can you get more guarantees before you merge and not just for your own piece of code. And I think what I see a lot, which is also what I used to do, is like I make a new class, I have to test it, so I an interface, like a protocol, and now I can test it, and now it's swappable, and it looks green, it's great, and the CI says everything is green, I merge it, and then it goes on the release train, and then we see like, oh, it's actually not working as well as we hoped, and it's already too late. So mm -hmm. what I want to focus on, what I've, what I've seen a lot of good results with is, testing with more actual code, which is which goes against the entire concept of units. So yeah. a lot of people don't like it. I know they don't, but it actually does work well. If you can, let's say I have like a complete stack, let's take the video uploader and I have mm -hmm. like sort of data chunking logic and I have like uploading logic and I have like my API calls and I have like the video uploader component itself. Some people may say, you know what, I'm going to take the video uploader and I'm going to mark everything up below because now not, because that's the only thing I need to really test is the most important thing and my test will run quickly and so on. What I would say is, well, test everything, test the video uploader, make it use all the real types, mm -hmm. only only mock out the tiniest part, which is the API call itself, not right. the complete API domain, only the tiny function that makes the call. And now when you test the uploader component, you indirectly test everything. So it's it's kind of like integration tests almost, but without view API calls, it's kind of like you may call it component testing. Okay. Uh, but I but I want to take it a bit further and say you want to test as much of your code as possible, and that gives you a lot more guarantees in how yeah and how your code is actually used. Okay. So is it different from like because it sounds like you mock the API the back end, but then you test, but you're not testing so, the individual pieces. You're testing a whole set of pieces. As they integrate, yeah, so the, except for the backend, yeah, so I guess. I, yeah, but let's say also have like file storage. I would probably in some cases also test file storage. A lot of people would say don't do that because it's a global mutable state. Mm -hmm. But I actually did work on the video upload and I caught issues by actually testing the file storage. Now the problem is it's slow, it's I.O., things go wrong. But I'd rather know that during my unit test phase than merging it, having gotcha. it on my test screen, and then go to the release, and then be like, oh, wait, it's actually not working on Mac. 
or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, interesting. So, yeah, because I've I've run into that before. That's a really good good point. Where I've like downloaded large files or uploaded large files, and like, yeah, if you can test that out, would that be a good case? Like in iOS world, would that be a good case for like doing a UI test, maybe, or would you still do it as a test case? So, so I think UITers are amazing, and a lot of people actually don't like them. I like them a lot because if I give a manual tester my new feature, they will go, they will grab, I don't know, four phones, and they'll test it for me, right? And But they can only test so much. They will not test that if I have, like, dark mode and a large font size and right to yep. left on an iPhone 5, only then there's a major bug. But, yep. like, it's hard to find. I'm not saying UITers will also find those, but, but like, let's say I minimize my screen, like, a background, the app, at one of the 60 screens, and on one of those screens, the app crashes. Like, mm -hmm. uh, I've had that happen. Manual testing is, is not really going to find that as quickly. And I find right. UITers are amazing that you can really scale up all these variants. You can do, like, let me just take 12 devices and all these variants and, and just go ahead. But, but people don't like them for good reasons. They don't like them because they're slow. They're slow to write. They're slow to run. Yep. Uh, they they're brittle, they're flaky, and I get yes. all that. Yep. But I do do see a lot of value that even running them like nightly, and getting some reports can already be like like a little bird in the coal mine. Like it gives you already some warning. Like careful, like, like one week before the release cutoff comes, you yeah. already can get some problems noted. Even though maybe some tests are flaky and they're red, but maybe they're fine. Yeah, it tells you something, right? I, I see a lot of value in that actually. Yeah. Well, before we, so I want to. Let's let's ask one more question about. Sure. So your book is actually pretty like it's not focused on I like obviously your expertise is in iOS and Swift, but it's not really focused just on that. There's sample code mostly in Swift, but you're a lot of this could be applied to like web developers, Android developers, etc. Is there anything in particular iOS and Swift folks? Can take advantage of when building building an app in particular to their platforms or in, in regards to system design yeah yeah is there something yeah. like you're like here's an example in swift or an xcode or ios development where it's mm -hmm. like you definitely this is one mistake i see folks do when it comes to systems design for ios or mac os ah, or whatever yeah exactly i think system design itself is more it's not so much focus on the details it's more like language agnostic and, and like yeah like you said like the book is not specific for ios but once you go into the details it does matter which language and which platform you're using so i don't think there's like one specific problem that ios developers do that android developers don't i think it's more about the constraints and limitations we have so how would you like is there something about Xcode that can maybe help you like be more consistent with your design, I guess? Yeah, so I do think large-scale iOS apps are, it's maybe not in every company, but it's not really something that Xcode is really fantastic at yet. Mm -hmm. Like I've, I've fought packages for years now. Like, yeah. like I remember when Swift came out, you can only have six Swift packages. That was the, the limitation. Of are you that. serious? Like you oh my it. gosh. Yeah, yeah, something like that. Because the, it was all like, you know, Swift 3 or something. It was early, early days, and I get that. Yeah. Um, so I do find in iOS you're more limited to having fewer packages, or at least that's how it used to be. Whereas Android developers could just have like eighty, no problem. Right, um, right. So that, that so that does impact like how you think about like maybe larger modules versus like lots of tiny little interface modules everywhere. Yeah. So I do think that matters. One thing think, I've I've oh. started doing is breaking down. So I I I don't know. I'll call it package driven development because I I want the I want to make that yeah. that 
trademark that so I can cash in on it. Yeah. So one thing is like my, most of my apps are all stored in Swift packages. There tends to be very little code in the actual app. And I've started breaking down my Swift package targets uh, as much as I can, both for faster development, because obviously Mm -hmm. you got parallelism going on, but also just easier maintenance. Like, okay, this is the part that does networking. This is the part and it's a separate target. And, And that I found a bit like very helpful. We can get into modularization. That's a whole other episode, but I think that's a big, big, big thing. And I, I don't, I can't speak for my, my friends who do Kotlin or, or TypeScript or whatever, but like, when it comes to Swift, like taking advantage of making packages as as tight yeah. as possible and as small into as small uh, as possible, and then making those dependencies much easier to maintain, yeah, I think is super helpful. Much easier. Yeah, 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 absolutely. I, I think it's not like a unique Swift iOS thing, but it's definitely helped that Swift is so much easier now to uh, set up a package environment for sure. Right. Uh, there may still be some issues with Objective C mixing and like other problems people are having, but like when it works, it works really well. Right, right, yeah, and I think like that's a that's a big thing. I think is just breaking your things down as much as possible. When we had Aviel on, we talked about like don't don't just have one giant environment object. Break it down like and yeah. breaking things down into smaller pieces is both helpful for maintenance and helpful for building and helpful for testing. I mean, there's just so much, so much. You can I definitely agree, that. And, and, yeah. and it creates these hard boundaries between domains if you grab the right domain, right? It's, it's can, can be really powerful that someone isn't accidentally inputting UI in a in sort of a data part, you know, that can happen when you don't have these boundaries. So it's really great. Yeah, yeah. So before we close out, I wanted to talk about interviewing and interviews. That's something you talk about a little mm-hmm. bit in the beginning of the mm-hmm. book. I know there's a lot of people who are interested in interviews and getting the right yeah. job nowadays. So, and you talk about that a bit, especially in the context of systems design. Do you think do you think the process is broken? Do you th- what do you think as developers who are interviewing we should be doing better yeah. when we are interviewed and also interviewing, I guess? Yeah, so so it's kind of interesting because it's sort of like a new thing where there are already system design interviews for backend and now more and more for mobile, mm-hmm. but it's not really sure what you're going to get. So I've heard and seen interviews where you get a, a UI screen and they say like, hey, how would you make this? And you would write a pseudocode, right? Mm-hmm. Like like a shared text editor and you write some few controllers, but it doesn't have to compile or anything. But they would say like, oh, would you use a table view or a collection view? Like, what if there's lots of data needs to be stored? Mm-hmm. How would that work? But I've also seen interviews and also been part of interviews where people just just give you like a prompt. They, they just say like, hey, make me this thing. Like the video uploader, how would that work? And, and they just give you nothing else. And you have to ask questions, figure out what they need, figure out what the requirements, think, think about the limitations. And, and they're really looking for these signals that you come up with all the edge cases, all the problems, all the components that are needed. But I find hard is to say you know study these five things and now you're ready for interviews because first of all you don't know what you're gonna get a second the interviews all over all, all over the place yeah so so there are guys like they say like you know learn about you know keychain versus core data versus property list you know and, and and i think that's good too but it will not guarantee you a good interview result what i think is really important and which is also why i'm writing about it is more like to be able to come up with a solution for something you've never done before but because that's one thing you can expect you're gonna have to make something you've never made before right like like if, yeah like if someone asks me like hey make an ar image video filter thing i've never made that before but like how would i approach it well i would <laughs> come up with 
you know, components and domains and like limitations and maybe mobile limitations, processor capacity, I don't know. Those are kind of the things that interviewers want to hear. They want to see you think about all the important parts that are needed. And so yeah, I guess one, one big takeaway would be you cannot really prepare for one interview, but you can train yourself to, to ask the right questions back, to get like a better idea of what's being asked of you. You can use some tactics to like design your application without knowing the details. And that's exactly what I've been trying to help people with. Yeah. Do you think it's something that's easy to study for, or is it much suited for a mobile developer with a current position to build experience so that way they can? Because it seems like it's an experiential thing more than a studying thing to be a mobile yeah. systems designer. You know what I mean? I think Yeah, so I do think it's an, it's an awareness thing. So if I give maybe someone just starting out like a feature, they may go straight to UI, for example. And if I give like a staff engineer feature, they may ask me if it should support all the teams in the company. I don't know, a completely yeah. different angle. Right. And I do I do think you can you can study and prepare for like asking kind of what's required of you. Mm -hmm. I think that gives that, that goes a long way. So if, yeah. if 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 you know what to ask for, like know like, hey, they're giving me half the information, I need the full picture, that's already a great step. If you yeah. just start programming, I think that's more of a problem. So I, th I think you can train it to some extent. I think, yeah, I think it's totally healthy to have like a two-way conversation when you're getting interviewed on a complex question like that. I think sometimes people who are interviewed get a little bit intimidated. Like they think they're supposed to know the answer. Like it's just, here's yeah. the question, here's the answer. But yeah, I think sometimes when they, <laughs> like, and as somebody who's done the interviews, like I think it's important to realize sometimes those open-ended questions are there because they want to have a conversation with you. They want to know that you're asking yeah. the right question. And like, it's just to get a good feel of someone being like having a little bit more confidence and instead of being like, okay, I, I'm going to go make the best video uploader. It's like, no, slow down. Like ask yeah, them the right questions. Them, right? It's not, it's not a right and wrong answer. It's much more of a, yeah. of like, we're trying to get a good feel of this person to see if he's going to work with us or she's going to work with us. And yeah. she knows and has that experience. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah. And, and they may test your communication skills. Yeah, exactly. Test your yeah, IOS knowledge you, you don't know, but like it's good to... It's not a binary. Yeah. There's no right answer, especially... No. There, there is no but right answer to a video <laughs> uploader. Sorry about that's that, true. if that's what you're looking for. I think I think we we talked about everything, except the most important thing. When is this book going to come out, and how can I get it? Well, I'll give it on to you. <laughs> but uh, coming out... Uh, no, but I'll, uh, it's coming out in 2023 somewhere. I'm okay. halfway there, so but I can't exactly give a date yet, but I will make it ready for pre-orders once the half the book is done. Okay, do you have like a mailing list folks can sign up for? Yeah, I do have one. I can send you the link. Uh, yep, I'll and we'll put it. that in the show notes. So yeah, definitely. Oh, perfect. This, this is awesome. I'm so glad somebody is coming out with this book because it needs to be done. There's way, there's yeah, way too many thing. books about how to make Swift UI do do a shiny animation, and we need more more. Everything has its place. <laughs> Everything has its place. That's true. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. But uh, if you have a, run a large team, or you have a large enterprise app, and or you're a mobile developer, and you're looking to take it take it to the next level, I highly highly recommend checking this out. The link to the mailing list will be in the show notes, so you can check that out and get get an update when that book is ready. I've looked at it. There's a lot of good stuff stuff in it cheer thank you so much for coming on yeah. this has been fantastic thank you so much i really appreciate it, it yeah fun. yeah where can people find you online it's probably better to spell but it's at chair in spain t-j-e-e-r-d 
I-N-T-V-E-E-N. And yeah, I guess that's the best way to go. Just find me on Twitter. And we'll have the links to, yeah, Twitter, LinkedIn, yeah, Mastodon, okay. all that fun stuff in our show notes. People can find me on Twitter at Leo G. Dion. My company is Bright Digit. I'm on Mastodon. I got to say Mastodon now. I'm on Mastodon too at Leo G. Dion at CI.IM and LinkedIn as well. If you have any questions or feedback, let us know. We'd love to hear you from you. If you're listening to this on a podcast player, please take some time to put in a review. This is YouTube. Please like and subscribe. Really, I would appreciate that. Next episode in two weeks, we'll be with Marin on his new app, Data Tile. So definitely check that out. I, have, I hope everybody has a good week and we'll talk to you later. Bye, everyone. Bye-bye.